Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Very warm welcome to what is the second in the LSE European Institute's Perspectives on Europe series of public lectures. This particular lecture is, in fact, the first of a number of events to mark the 20th anniversary of those world-changing events of late 1989, in which we try to assess their significance and their impact, and also, in the case of today, exactly what did happen. Now, of course, there's no shortage of such lectures and seminars and conferences and roundtables at the moment. Some are lively and stimulating. Others are somewhat denser or more academic in the strict sense, many probably going over some rather well-familiar material. But have no fear, because tonight, the book and the author we are launching upon you are offering narrative history on an epic and really gripping scale, and that's no exaggeration. Now, most great moments in history have a chronicler who bears witness in a particularly telling and memorable way. And I'm hoping that Victor Sebastian won't blush when I mention, for example, Pliny the Younger's account of the eruption of Vesuvius, Walt Whitman's account of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, or perhaps Martha Gellhorn's description of the Dachau concentration camp, or perhaps John Simpson's account of the massacre of Tiananmen Square. Well, it's time to add another. And the reason our guest, Victor Sebastian's book, received such outstanding reviews when it was published in the summer is because it really is exceedingly good. He really does transport us to Moscow, Berlin, Budapest, Sofia, Bucharest, Prague. And we are, really feel as though we are right there. But he doesn't let, Victor doesn't let the excitement go to his head. Uh, this is not uh, macho, uh, been there, got the t-shirt, um, on the hoof, scissors and paste type journalism. This is serious and professional history, seen through the journalist's eye and rendered with the journalist's skill. Victor Sebastian has painstakingly uh, pieced the facts together to tell us coolly and analytically how events unfolded, who said what to whom, who made frantic phone calls to whom, what preposterous disguises they assumed, and at what point they realized the game was up. Now, as in all serious narrative history, it is not grand explanations which are center stage. This is not a history of uh, big socioeconomic forces playing themselves out or of uh, people and institutions somehow being swept along in the irresistible tide of history. This is, this is a very different sort of history. This is history which uh, places individual human beings center stage with all their uncertainties and vulnerability and leading or accepting or resisting the will of the people to different extents on different national stages. I think what struck me most on reading it was how much his book uh, shows, how his book shows how hard it was for the actors themselves uh, to make sense of the unfolding events, let alone control them or predict them. And in some ways, it's still hard for us to make sense of what happened. But in another way, in another sense, we never lose sight of the wood 
or the woods for the trees, because this is a tale of history unfolding and ultimately of human emancipation. Now, in his research, uh, Victor has been given extraordinary access to secret archives. He's talked to many of the key personalities of the time, um, not all of whom he's actually able to mention by name in his acknowledgments, but they were happy to talk to him. Uh, obviously, he must respect their confidence. Um, but he, the upshot is that he has added substantially uh, to the existing scholarship with, with new facts, uh, new insights, and new appraisals, which will cause um, quite a few, I think, of the cause us to review quite a few of the uh, personalities, their particular motivations and their reputations indeed. And I actually find that one of the most um, interesting aspects of the book. Now, just a little bit more about Victor before I hand over to uh, the main piece. And, um, he was born in Budapest. Uh, he was as an infant, uh, uh, he was just an infant when his family left Hungary as, as refugees for, uh, for Britain. Uh, he's uh, a journalist who has worked for numerous British newspapers and magazines. And apart from reporting uh, widely from Central, uh, Eastern and Central Europe when communism collapsed in 1989, as we're discussing today, he also covered the war in former Yugoslavia. Uh, he was foreign editor of the London Evening Standard uh, and media editor and chief leader writer. And uh, some of you may be familiar with his first book, Twelve Days, which came out in 2006, um, which is a very widely acclaimed account of the 1956 Hungary uprising. Uh, and I do commend it to you. It's already been translated into 15 languages. Now, I have to make a, a confession. Uh, Victor is my next-door neighbor. Uh, in fact, literally my next-door neighbor. We live in a terrace of houses. Uh, we share a hedge. We share a party wall. Um, but I hope that by now, just in light of what I've said, the reasons for inviting him this evening uh, are, are clear uh, and that you do not assume that this uh, august institution is reduced to scrabbling around amongst friends and neighbours or family just to keep you entertained on a miserable October evening. So my conscience is clear and I, hope, I believe you're about to see uh, why it is clear. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Victor Sebastian. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and, and thank you very much for coming to listen tonight. I'm, I'm delighted and honored to have been asked here at this, to this great institution. I'd like to take you back to Thursday, the 9th of December, uh, November, 20 years ago, to East Berlin. Another big 9-11 the real 9-11, as I reverently call it. It's a date that I suspect may have more long-term significance than the one we generally think of nowadays um, when we think of that day. In Berlin, it started as a grey, misty, damp day for about five degrees centigrade, and it stayed like that throughout. A pretty miserable day. There was a bad smell of sulphur in the air, from the appalling pollution that often overwhelmed the city in those days, especially in late autumn when an easterly wind was blowing. That morning, though, there seemed little to suggest that this would be one of the big days of the 20th century. And it wouldn't have been, but for one big mistake. 
one of the most colossal administrative errors in history, as Condoleezza Rice, then a bright young aide working for the first President Bush, um, as an expert on the Soviet Union, put it. Change had begun in Eastern Europe by that November, but it was happening haltingly and quite slowly, really. There had been an air of crisis in parts of the East Bloc for the last few months. That spring, Hungary had pulled down the section of the Iron Curtain it possessed, the barbed wire it it shared with Austria. In the summer, the Poles had elected the first non-communist government in the post-war Soviet sphere. But there were still around three-quarters of a million Russian troops occupying countries which then were gloomy, unwelcoming places. Few people wanted to visit. But where now we go on cheap weekend Euro breaks with EasyJet. The Soviet Union still existed. It had hundreds of nuclear weapons aimed at Western cities, and we in NATO had hundreds of of missiles targeted at them. The Cold War had thawed, but in the rigid countries tightly controlled by neo-Stalinist regimes stuck in a time warp, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, more than half of the area we think of as the East Bloc, it did not seem then like revolution was about to break out. And certainly not that the Berlin Wall, that powerful symbol of a divided continent, would imminently be breached. There had been huge demonstrations in East German cities for some weeks, but the regime was continuing to limp along, improvising day by day. It did not seem entirely out of control, though it was being damaged. The people were in a state of permanent revolt, but in a very orderly fashion, it seemed to me. They did their eight-hour days at work and then revolted in the evening. Not a single day's production was lost in um, the term, Devender of 1989. But the country was hemorrhaging people, and the regime knew it had to do something about that. Emigration, the right to travel, was the key issue to most East Germans search to find a way out. Over the preceding few months, Berliners who for two and a half decades had been unable to find a way through the wall, under the wall, or over it, had now found a way around it. In a few weeks, about 180,000 East Germans reached Hungary through Czechoslovakia, most of them in those enormous traffic jams of spluttering, tinny, trabant cars that belch noxious fumes, a mode of transport that seemed to define an entire civilization. Hungary eventually, after a few weeks of dithering and treating these East Germans as refugees, did the decent thing and agreed to let them leave for Austria, then to West Germany, and in their eyes to a freedom. At around four in the afternoon on this Thursday, the old men of the Communist Party elite in East Germany met in Berlin to approve a new travel law that they hoped would buy them some time and some breathing space. It allowed most people to leave, but still only after they had officially applied for a a passport and a visa. The idea was that there would still be some state control. That afternoon, they had no intention of giving out power or of losing control of their borders. 
The new law was to come into effect the next day, Friday the 10th at 10 a.m. The regime's leaders thought it would result in an orderly queue of people applying to a bureaucrat for permission to travel at some stage in the future. It was a relatively minor communist apparatchik who effectively opened the Berlin Wall by mistake. His name was Gunther Schabowski, the local Berlin Communist Party chief. He was a good-humoured, intelligent, if somewhat sinister man of dry wit, who had been deputed to hold one of his regular 6 p.m. press conferences that evening. Normally, he'd share a joke and occasionally a drink with reporters, but there was seldom any real news from these exchanges. The problem he faced this day was, was that he hadn't been at the meeting earlier that had made the decision about the travel law. His boss had only given him the documents to prepare for it about 15 minutes earlier, and he hadn't read them properly. The first 45 minutes or so of this press conference was boring, mostly concerned with dull administrative reforms, hardly front-page stuff. Hacks began to leave, heading for the famous bar of Berlin's International Press Center. Then Schabowski began to read out the text of the new decrees which seemed to suggest that it would be possible, and I quote, for every citizen to leave the country. The journalist got to listen and asked when the regulations would come into effect. This is where Schabowski, sweating by now, stumbled. He wasn't sure. He got his papers mixed up and started reading from the wrong texts, ignoring the next day's embargo. As far as I know... Uh, that is, uh, immediately, without delay. It's only a small exaggeration to say that this is the point where effectively Soviet-style communism in Europe died, just as the Berlin Wall was about to collapse, and because of one of those accidents in history. Various colourful and intriguing conspiracy theories have been suggested to explain Schabowski's misstatements. He was paid by the CIA... He was paid by the West German government. He was paid by rogue elements in the Kremlin. No one within the upper reaches of the East German Communist Party could believe that it was a straightforward cock-up, one senior party official said later. But that's precisely what it was. What happened next, of course, was that the announcement appeared on West German TV by 8.30pm that night, watched by most East Germans. Moments later, Schabowski repeated his blunder in an interview with an American news network. By the time that broadcast was finished, hundreds of these Germans arrived at three of the border points. Nothing like it had happened, in, happened since the wall had gone up in August 1961. For a while, the bemused guards tried to hem the crowds in, but the time for that sort of thing was past. An hour or so later, 25,000 people had converged on one of the biggest of the border posts, shouting demands to be let out. Many had bought their cars and simply abandoned them, which blocked two exit routes at the crossroads. The scene was chaotic, potentially explosive. It was another little-known figure, a Colonel Harold Yeager, something of of a hero who on his own decision and disobeying orders 
told two of his men to lift the red and white gates and wave the crowds through. All I was thinking about now was to avoid bloodshed, he said later. There were so many people and they didn't have the space to move. If a panic had started, people would have been crushed. We had pistols. What if one of the men had lost his nerve? Even a shot in the air? I can't imagine what reaction that would have provoked. The rest, well, made history. And also, one of the greatest week-long street parties there's ever been. I've made this long introduction as um, an attempt to show how events could have worked out entirely differently. If Gunter Schabowski had not misspoken, if the communist old guard had mustered one final act of will to make a fight of it, if there had not been a dramatic breach on the wall and one extraordinary night involving masses of people, these inspired an unstoppable momentum for change elsewhere in Eastern Europe over the next days and weeks. There were lots of moments in that year when things could have been different. They could have been bloody and ugly. There was nothing inevitable about them. My aim was to capture some of the excitement, the drama and the exhilaration on the streets of Berlin and Bucharest and Budapest and Prague in those dizzying few months of 1989. So I did concentrate on the people, from communist officials to dissident playwrights to shipyard workers to women, and generally it was women who were queuing at the food stores, the highs and, and lows of this story. I can see that predominantly there are young people in this audience and that is very gratifying and encouraging. Some of you may not have been born when um, these events happened or were very young. Yet it wasn't that long ago in years, even if it seems to some others an eternity distant in many other ways. This creates a problem and an opportunity for anyone writing about this period. I don't know whether your lecturers have the same feeling that the brilliant historian John Lewis Gaddis felt, who said that from around the mid-1990s onwards, each time he started a new academic year at Yale, he felt as though the Cold War might as well have been the Peloponnesian War for all the resonance it had with some students. So I've written a history book, but it isn't entirely a dispassionate study. As, as, as Morris said, I saw many of these events happen as a journalist. Um, I took part in those amazingly moving, passionate demonstrations of, of people power that autumn and winter. I, I spoke to many of the, of the key players at the time and, and saw these regimes crumble. Also, I suppose my own background did make a difference to the way I saw these events compared to um, some of the other reporters. So this book is the result of personal experience as well as of research in libraries and archives. Also, I wrote a great deal of of the background in 89 as I thought it was so important to recall how the world looked back then and how suddenly, unexpectedly and quickly it all changed. We've speedily moved on to a completely different clash of civilizations that consumes our minds now. But in the 80s, the perceived threat to our way of life in Britain and the West still was Soviet-style communism. It is sometimes hard to recall now that almost half of Europe lived behind that Iron Curtain. 
those electric fences and minefields, in one of two camps opposed by an ideology as well as a massive arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. The division of Europe, symbolized most hideously by a three and a half meter high wall in the middle of a great European city, seemed like a fact of life that would not change, almost certainly not in my lifetime. The sudden collapse, not just of a few nasty regimes, but of an entire way of life and of interpreting the world, was a shock to nearly everyone, not least to the leaders of some of these regimes themselves, people like Erich Honecker in East Germany or um, Todor Zhivkov in Bulgaria. After the event, many sages in academia, the military, the media, politics, diplomacy, boasted that they had seen it coming. But it's hard to find much evidence of that, not least from within the intelligence agencies of the East or the West. Espionage played a vital role in the Cold War. In reality, as well as culturally in the imagination of public fed on a diet of thrillers and spy movies. Trillions of dollars and rubles were spent by the agencies, but the spies were very rarely telling their masters in London, Washington, or Moscow the truth that the Soviet Empire was collapsing of its own volition. A fascinating man named Douglas McGeechin was for decades the CIA's chief analyst on the Soviet Union. He said once that had he produced reports on how weak the Soviet system was, and he knew it was weak, people would have been calling for my heads and for cuts in the services. Robert Gates, the CIA director at that time, was in the spring of 1989 when Hungary began dismantling its Iron Curtain, reporting that there was no way the Soviets would give up their dominion in Eastern Europe and certainly not allow a breach in the Berlin Wall. He went on to become Defence Secretary under the second President Bush and remained so under President Obama. This, this sort of thing has resonance from conflicts post-Cold War. My point is not to berate the intelligence agencies for the hell of it, it's to show that even in hindsight, it doesn't seem inevitable that the Soviet Empire, that vast monolith that, we were, that two generations of people were brought up to fear, would disappear almost overnight. Most analysts were predicting that it could limp on for decades trying and failing to reform communism, that the USSR, that the USSR itself would carry on their ages as upper Volta with nukes. Few saw a cataclysm that would bring down the whole edifice. As James Baker, the American Secretary of State in 1989, told me some years later, if anyone says they saw it coming the way it did, well, they're blowing smoke at you. There's a lot of revisionist talk nowadays to the effect that it wasn't really so bad living under communism. Well, it was, and we shouldn't forget it. Of course, there were some important successes. Basic education was one, and we shouldn't ignore that. They made great strides there. But some communist chic that's fashionable now, the radical nostalgia, is based on myths and encouraged by the financial crisis the world is currently going through. I'm not being reductive or using economic performance as the sole measure of a society's success. Far from it. 
It was a crushing conformity, the cynical social contract party leaders made with their people. We will stuff their mouths with sausage and that will keep them quiet, as one of them, the Pole, Edward Jarek, so tastefully put it. And the dashed ideals that were so depressing and ultimately defeating. As usual in Central Europe, that was all reduced to a joke. We pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. It was a very common joke, but actually it was a fairly accurate description of the socialist surrealism that life had become in most of these countries by the, by the 80s. In some important ways, they were different. Hungary, even by the 70s, was relatively relaxed to the merriest barracks in the camp, they called it. It had surface prosperity, while Romania had food rationing and was a police state run by a megalomaniac great leader where you needed government permission to own a typewriter. Despite these differences, throughout Central and Eastern Europe, people shared the feeling that they were living a big lie under a failed system that was imposed on them. I'd like to read an extract from the book that, that gives the flavor of it and um, it's about East Germany and the Stasi, but, but it could equally apply to, to almost anywhere to describe the unfreedom people felt in places like Prague or Sofia or Bucharest. Gone were the days by the 1980s when people were locked up for long periods, physically tortured and left to rot in camps. But there was 24-hour surveillance of thousands of people most of the information painstakingly recorded in every detail in the tonnage of the Stasi's files was mind-numbingly boring and irrelevant. The writer Lutz Rathenau was working on a guidebook to Berlin. He was followed for months. His secret service minders rarely got anything more significant than this, and I quote from a Stasi report. Rathenau then crossed the street and ordered a sausage at a stand. The following conversation took place. Rathenau, a sausage, please. Vendor, with or without a roll. Rathenau, with, please. Vendor, and mustard. Rathenau, yes, please. Further exchanges did not take place. <laughs> Ulrika Popper was one of a very few political activists in the GDR. She belonged to a peace group and an environmental group that was looking at pollution levels in Berlin. Her husband, Gert, was a highly regarded physicist. We had a microphone in our apartment, Ms. Popper said. It wasn't a small device, a big one connected to a, table that, um, connected to a cable that led to another apartment two floors below where the receiver must have been. They were harassed and targeted by the firm as the Stasi were called. They lost their jobs. Stasi agents did their best to break up the popper's marriage and turn their son, Jonas, against them. A Stasi report explained how they could achieve their objective. To encourage UP in her intention to separate from her husband. We should suggest that if she were to drop all her public activities and stop cooperating with the enemy, she might be able to embark on a program of advanced study. She should be encouraged to believe that if this, she separates from her husband, she'll be financially secure. A travel ban against her could be eased. 
To exacerbate the marriage crisis, contact person Harold will be introduced to Mrs. Popper with the aim of establishing an intimate relationship. Gert Popper must be prevented from improving his professional and social prospects. Through a campaign of anonymous letters, he is to be discriminated against in the workplace. The headmistress of School 15 in Prenzlauerberg is to exert a positive influence over Jonas Popper. Popper, once a leading figure at a scientific research institute, found a job as a swimming pool attendant. So why did the Soviet Union give up its domain so quickly and without a fight? Obviously, the role of Mikhail Gorbachev is the vital factor. He is an almost forgotten man in Moscow now. It is very sad. When he is remembered at all, he is invariably vilified as the man who gave away an empire without firing a shot and whose actions caused economic collapse when the Soviet Union itself broke up in 1991. To the nationalists around Vladimir Putin, this was a humiliating disaster for which Gorbachev was directly responsible and from which Russia took years to recover. In new Russian textbooks, Gorbachev's hardly mentioned, while Stalin has been rehabilitated as a great Russian leader, no matter that he was Georgian. Gorbachev was the central player in the story, a great man of great contradictions and of great blind spots. He and the influential advisers around him realized that the outer empire, as the Soviets called Eastern Europe, was more of a burden than a prize which was weakening the USSR. Soon after he came to power, he changed the terms of trade between Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. He told the aging rulers of the Warsaw Pact regimes that they were on their own, that the Red Army would not protect them, although it was a long time before that Stalinist leadership in Czechoslovakia or Eric Honecker believed him. But Gorbachev had no conscious plan to abandon the states, satellite states. He genuinely believed that if they were left to their own devices, they would choose to stay in a socialist fraternity with Moscow. It was a huge miscalculation. But he did make one great decision for which history will always remember him. And it's a decision he stuck to despite all the pressures against him not very many people would have made it, that the prestige of empire was not worth fighting and spilling blood for. Without him, the process could have been long drawn out and much, much bloodier. The classic narrative in the West, as history is written by the victors, is that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher won the Cold War through their bellicose rhetoric against the evil empire and through a massive arms build-up that included the threat of weapons in space. The Soviets, so the argument goes, couldn't compete. Now, with so much more material available from archives and oral history, especially from the former Soviet bloc, we can take a much more nuanced view. Ronald Reagan is a deeply misunderstood figure, often admired for the wrong reasons, particularly by his supporters on the right. Using hindsight, it's hard sometimes to figure out why he is a hero among neoconservatives at all. In Reagan's first term, he got nowhere in the improvement of East-West relations. Quite the opposite. His hard line predictably provoked a mirror-like response 
from the deeply conservative men in the Kremlin. It led nearly to a nuclear war through a mixture of accident and misunderstanding when in 1983 the Soviets, paranoid, thought a fairly routine NATO exercise was really the preparation for a preemptive strike, which it wasn't. This was the nearest the world got to a nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis more than 20 years earlier, though it was kept secret at, at the time. That exercise shook Reagan and changed him profoundly. Reagan was successful, successful when he took a softer approach and found a negotiating partner in Gorbachev, entirely against the advice of the hawks around him in the US defense establishment. That is when the deals were made that brought the Cold War to an end. It was the culmination of four decades of Western containment of communism. If I'm asked three other reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Empire, I would say Afghanistan, foreign debt, and unstable oil prices. Afghanistan was the only war the Soviet Union lost. Their disastrous conflict there was a profound shock to the system, our bleeding wound, as Gorbachev called it, and occasionally, in private, our Vietnam. More than 15,000 Soviet troops were killed in a decade, nearly a decade, and a million or so Afghans. Very early on, it was seen by leaders in the Kremlin as the reason they would not send troops elsewhere in their dominions. For example, there was an overriding reason why at the start of the Solidarity Movement in Poland during 1980 and 81, that the Soviet Union did not send tanks into Warsaw and Gdansk. These were the traditional methods they had adopted against counter-revolution as in Budapest in 56 or Prague in 1968. The answer came simply from the most hardline apologist for Soviet imperialism in the entire Kremlin leadership at the time, the long-serving ideology, ideology chief, Mikhail Soslov. We simply cannot afford another Afghanistan on our hands, he said, during an agonizing Politburo debate in the Kremlin about how to deal with the Poles. The Soviets' futile campaign in Afghanistan made them reluctant to send troops into battle anywhere else. And without the implied threat of force, they were in a weaker position to hold on to their European empire. Gorbachev decided almost as soon as he came to power that the war had to end, especially as the generals said it couldn't be won, that the best the Russians could do was to stabilize the situation for the Afghan government. The question was how to pull out without losing too much faith. Reading the Politburo minutes of the time is an agonizing business, as Gorbachev and his colleagues groped for an answer. It took them four years before they could possibly accept the humiliation of Soviet defeat by a band of terrorists. By the time the Red Army left Afghanistan in February 1989, Soviet prestige had sunk Dissidents in Central and Eastern Europe were less worried than they had ever been that the Soviets would use force against them. The Soviet involvement in Afghanistan in the 80s undoubtedly emboldened the opposition in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, in Poland, and played a big part in the fall of the Berlin Wall just a few months later. Apart from Romania, which had insane economic policies of its own, 
the East European countries in the 80s were mired in debt to the West. As the brave and shrewd Polish dissident Adam Miknik put it, they tried to build communism on the US dollar. Debt was a vital factor in their weakness. The Hungarian Prime Minister in the late 1980s explained how his country had used a one billion Deutschmark loan from West Germany in November 87 that was supposed to go towards economic reform in Eastern Europe. I quote, we spent two-thirds of it on paying interest on previous loans and the remainder importing consumer goods to ease the impression of economic crisis. They lied incessantly about their economic performance. East Germany, which at one point the World Bank was fooled into listing as the ninth richest country in the world, paid more than 70% of its national income on foreign loans and found it hard to meet its monthly interest payments. Communist leaders like Erich Honecker and Janosz Kadar in Hungary found that the only way to stock shelves in their, in their countries was to buy popularity and to borrow from the hyenas of capitalism. Bankers saw East Europe as a safe bet. Ultimately, they thought the Soviet guarantee over the socialist bloc would rule out any chance of default. As that Hungarian Prime Minister, Miklos Nemet, who himself subsequently became a banker, explains it, the killing of the communist system began the moment the Western banks gave loans to countries like Hungary. We were on a hook. We couldn't get off. Western bankers did as much to bring down communism as Ronald Reagan did, but I don't think they were doing it for politics. From early 1986, the Soviets decided they would not or could not give guarantees, either economic or political, to the regimes in their socialist commonwealth. But it was the collapse of oil prices in the mid-1980s that forced the final crisis of Soviet communism. When the Soviets' principal export income crashed, they were almost bankrupted, and many in their leadership started seriously thinking about the way the economic system of their empire worked. Was it worth subsidizing the Warsaw Pact countries with cheap oil and natural gas? In return for shoddily produced consumer goods made in Eastern Europe that no Soviet citizens wanted to buy any longer. Economists and think tanks in Moscow are beginning to question the entire relationship between the USSR and its European colonies. But as so often, it was one hard case, a minor scandal, that prompted action. The USSR's closest ally, Bulgaria, was profiting by selling on cheap oil it received from the Soviet Union to the West at international market prices and pocketing the difference in convertible currency. It made quite a bit of money this way. When, when Gorbachev heard, he was furious and, and raged against the dictator who had been in power in Sofia for three decades. It profoundly changed his attitude to East Europe, in which he was fast losing interest anyway. Ultimately, communism and Soviet dominion over Eastern Europe depended on the willingness of the Soviet Union to prop up the regime's in its satellite states against their own people. The writing was on the wall for them when the Soviets decided they were no longer prepared to do so. Gorbachev did not want to lose an empire, but the ultimate sign of how relaxed he was about it 
was that he didn't even know that the Berlin Wall had fallen until the next day. For four decades, the Soviet Union had regarded Berlin as its most prized possession. It stood as the symbol of Soviet power. It was thought central to the USSR's strategic interests. Yet amazingly, unimaginably now, on that wonderful night when crowds forced these German border guards to open the gates of the checkpoints, nobody thought to call the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party to keep him informed. The speed of these revolutions in 1989 was extraordinary. Over the weeks that autumn, a momentum of its own had built up. We now talk a great deal about the power of Twitter and the Internet. Are they a force for democracy or not? was a question that raged on the tweets of the recent demonstrations in Tehran, for example. It is undeniable that the new technologies of 20 years ago played a major part in the 89 events. This was the first fully televised revolution in history. There were hardly any mobile phones then and no World Wide Web, but it was the first dawn of 24-hour rolling news on television, and that helped to create a dynamic for change. In Berlin and Leipzig, people could watch West German TV reports of their fellow East Germans escaping to the West through Hungary. A few days after the wall fell, people in Czechoslovakia were shown pictures from East Germany, and that prompted the revolution in Velvet Revolution in Prague. The Romanian dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, was doomed the moment his face was shown on TV looking terrified when the crowd at a Bucharest rally started jeering him. Ultimately, East Europeans liberated themselves. It was peaceful, apart from a few days in Romania, largely because the communists lost the will to govern and leading figures in their regimes, the careerists on which the entire system depended, turned coat when they saw that they could make more money and keep as much power if they ditched the party and embraced the capitalists. How right they were in that is a different story and probably deserves a book of its own. But mainly it happened through the efforts of thousands of brave people over many years and some extraordinary personalities who are little remembered now like Lech Wawenza and Václav Havel, who in a myriad of ways risked a great deal in a struggle against repression. It's their story I try to tell. Well, I think we can all agree that was a marvellous, uh, uh, rich and textured and fascinating um, presentation. Victor, thank you so much. You pressed so many buttons and um, um, raised so many points, which uh, for sure we're going to want to take up. And now in time-honored LSE fashion, um, we've allowed uh, a decency of time uh, for questions from the audience. Um, and Victor is uh, kindly, uh, seems, uh, well, seems, except with alacrity, invitation to take questions. So um, if, um, if you could uh, put your hand up, if you'd like to speak, uh, please, as usual, say who you are, where you're from, uh, keep it short and sweet, and please don't smuggle uh, other questions in under the cover of the first, and if you could just wait for the portable microphone to be uh, brought to you, that would be, that would be great. Thanks so much. Um, Otherwise, you can't make eye contact over there. Um, yes, sorry, the gentleman at the back. Uh, hello, um, my name is Anthony. I'm from Poland, studying CL, sorry. 
I wanted to ask this summer, Poland started a new campaign to make the first democratic elections the this culminating point of the revolution and not the fall of the Berlin Wall. How many chances do you give us to succeed to change this symbol? Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear it. Could you repeat, yes, you repeat that question? I, wasn't, I couldn't quite hear it. Poland tries to change the symbol of the 1989 from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the preceding the first democratic elections that take place in the summer, as you mentioned. How much chances do you give us? Well, of course, it was, the, it was and the polls in many ways started the whole, started the whole process. It was very, very much, this, my, my, my book starts pretty much with solidarity and um, how significant solidarity was because it was, it, it was a workers' movement, a genuine workers' movement um, fi fighting against the party that claimed to be rep the representative of the working class. That was an ultimate challenge. The, the communists could see off a few radical students to, and, a, and a few um, assorted intellectuals, but when it was a well-organized, um, very, um, very powerful um, workers' movement organized with the trade union, that was the real start of, 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 of much of the trouble. So I give Poland um, the Poles and the Hungarians both like to say they started it first, and, and so I give it 50-50. Thank you. Okay, another question, please. Yes, gentleman there. Well, it's kind of entertaining to think that not only were all the spy agencies misled, but it sounds like the banks were as well, if they were loaning money to countries which ultimately couldn't pay. Uh, was there little due diligence on the bank's part of what the state of the economies were? Well, I, well, I'm not sure that there was because ultimately, I think they ultimately, I think they did get their their, um, their money back. Although all the loans were um, that were rescheduled, there were some defaults. There were some defaults afterwards, but um, it did seem at the time in that cold work period as, as though things were fixed and it seemed, like I say, it seemed rather a safer bet than investing in a, in a property in Milwaukee um, would, 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 would have been that. The, the Soviets had more or less given a political and economic guarantee that did last until the, until the, until the mid-80s. So when a, when a lot of, the, of the, those debts were originally um, made, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it was that risky for the risky for the banks. Subsequently, events have turned out differently. My, um, I'm not, I'm not um, a, um, an expert on, um, on what has happened, um, a total expert on what's happened in those economies since my, um, although I know exactly where to go to seek um, more information on it. <laughs> but I don't think it was too risky for the bankers at that time. Uh, please, when you do, if you do volunteer yourselves, please do say who you are, where you're from as well. It's fun for all of us to know. Even if you don't judge it important, it's quite interesting for everybody else. Um, okay, um, any more questions? Yes, Olivia. Um, hi, I'm Olivia. I'm just doing PGEU, which is about politics and government in the EU, Master. Um, and I was wondering, you said like the causes about um, why, why the fall of the Soviet Empire? But I was wondering if you just simplify, would you just say it's more like because of external factors and like 
the two blocs, like the US and the Soviet Union, or if it's more because of like internal factors, like just the Soviet Empire, and if it just was more like because of the ideology and everything, not all this. Well, I, I think, as I've tried to say, that, that many of the factors were internal in, in, those, in those, those, those countries themselves, and it was, it was movements that, that of, 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 of the people there that forced, um, that forced um, most of the change. Of course, those people operated in a wider context um, of, 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 the, of, the, of the two, of the two of the two blocks, of the two blocks. But as I, as I said, I think Eastern, I think these Europeans did liberated themselves. My, um, the, 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 the Soviets were, um, by the time came along, he was so convinced that it was that the, 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 the European, the, the Eastern Europe was a drudge on the empire, that actually there were many of his more radical advisors um, who were urging him just to ditch the whole lot of them as fast as, you know, as fast as you possibly, as fast as you possibly can. And the great irony, the great irony um, is that when it, um, in the middle of 1989, when the changes were happening, the, se- the first president, George Bush, went to, um, on a trip to Poland and to um, Hungary, and he was very worried about how the the pace of these changes was damaging what he thought of as as global global stability. And there was this extraordinary scene which I which I described, where he was um, the General Jaruzelski had just lost um, that the communists had just lost the election in Poland, and. Jaruzelski was deciding whether to continue staying on as um, president of Poland or not, and he'd more or less decided that he'd give up. And there was this scene in the Belvedere Palace in Warsaw when um, an American president, a Republican American president of a party that had been fighting communism for 45 years, was pleading with a um, a Polish general secretary and and a general of the Polish Communist Party to stay in power, stay as president, because um, because the radicals um, are not ready, and solidarity and the radicals are not ready to take over yet. We need stability. There were some extraordinary ironies like that in in, in that year. One of the things I'd just say. Um, uh, Victor really struck me the, the incident you're alluding to, uh, where George Bush Senior, as you said, sort of failed, he generally failed to find an idiom or sort of words which seemed to be up to the scale of what was happening. And what uh, comes across very strongly in your book is the sense of of apprehension, um, and hence his hankering for stability in the way that you've just described. In the same way that Margaret Thatcher and Francois Mitterrand felt about German unification, um, sort of almost double you know principle. Um, and uh, he's, uh, George Bush spectacularly failed to actually give any sense of uh, excitement, let alone momentum, to the events that well, were. Uh, well, as we yeah. can see, but it was a world they were comfortable. It was a world they understood that they that, 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 that they that they knew that they'd, that they'd lived in, that they knew about, that they could they could deal with. You know, they had their nukes. The other side, they had their nukes. If they were going to have a, a, pro- a war, it was going to be a proxy war somewhere in the third world. They weren't going to have a big 
conflagration in Europe. It was a, it was a, I'm not saying a cosy arrangement, but it was a, but it was a stable arrangement. The world is a different, much less explicable place now, much more, much more complex. Okay, more questions. Anyone from that side of the room? Right at the back, there's a gentleman in a pink shirt, I think, or white shirt, yes. Yeah, thanks. Hi, I'm Josh from the City of London School. I was wondering, where do you think Russia is going to go with Putin effectively leading us? You need a stiffer drink than that, I think. Yes. Well, in the closing years of the Cold War, neither the CIA nor SIS had human, as I'm known as human intelligence. They had absolutely no spies in the upper reaches of the Kremlin. And I'd be pretty surprised if we have any now in the upper reaches of the Kremlin. So I cannot possibly tell you. But I, what I don't think will happen, some people have been predicting a sort of second Cold War with Russia. But I don't think, I don't think that is, that is a possibility. What the Soviet Union was, was proposed, was proposing was an entirely different way of life, of ordering the universe, of running, of running things. They were offering, even if they failed to deliver it, they were promising something completely different. The present, Russia now isn't offering a different ideology. It isn't, it isn't offering a new life to remake the world. It is offering us oil and gas and it wants power. It's a very traditional, it seems to me a very traditional power relationship that goes almost 19th century and before that. It isn't an ideological struggle we're going to have with Russia. Thank you. Gentleman there, yes. And then. Hey, I'm Joe and I'm unemployed as a graduate, like most people. But anyway, yeah, I've got two questions. Basically, firstly, it was relating to the, you talked about how Gorbachev was hostile towards Eastern Europe. What was Gorbachev's attitude like to the further, further satellite states, so places like Cuba or North Korea and to a lesser extent Iran? And how did they react when the wall fell? What happened? Can you give us a bit of information on how the further states reacted post-1989? Well, well, after that, Gorbachev's main concentration was on staying in power and on trying to keep the Soviet Union together as a union. That's what he concentrated most of his efforts on. He didn't really give, he didn't really care much about Cuba. He dumped Cuba pretty much. It was an irritant. They didn't need to. They dumped some other third world countries. They didn't do anything to back the communist regime that was still left in power in Afghanistan for a few months, fighting on its own. Didn't really, he wanted to save, he wanted to save communism. He was a communist. He wanted to save communism. It wasn't until very, he thought the best way of saving communism in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, was to keep that union 
together. That's where most of his energies lay. And he didn't, he had very little time to think about countries like North Korea or Cuba. And of course, as we know now, he failed. He had a big battle. On the other hand, there was a growing rival, Boris Yeltsin, who came over. And a lot of his energies were spent on trying to defeat him as a rival. Their empire contracted until now it's Russia. That's the story of those three years. Their world got smaller. My name is Nawal Sadiqullah. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. I wanted to ask two questions, if that's okay. Firstly, I wanted to ask with regards to the Cold War period, was the Soviet Union aware of the Gladio projects of the U.S. that were in Turkey as well as in Greece? And furthermore, my second question is with regards to the two key points that you identified in 1989, the falling of the war and Gorbachev's attitude. You related these to Eastern Europe, but what were the events or what were the effects in Eurasia and the Caucasus that contributed to the fall of the Soviet empire? Well, there was. I mean, also in 1918, to answer the second question first, Gorbachev was very, they were very concerned about events in the Caucasus in 1989. There had been riots in Georgia in the spring. There was equally the Baltic republics. He was very, very concerned with keeping the union and the countries in the Caucasus. So he was willing to, that's where he concentrated his efforts, as I tried to answer with the last question. But again, he had made the decision after the riots in Tbilisi in the spring of 1989, where there were a number of deaths, he did issue orders that there were not going to be a repeat of the army to be sent in. And that was a decision he took. So he took the same decision in the union as he had taken in Eastern Europe, that he wasn't going to fight to keep it. He wanted to keep it. He would go as far as he could politically, and he would go to the wall, so to speak, politically. But he wasn't going to use violence to keep it. And I mean, there was one, there was again some deaths in Lithuania, but not very many. And again, after that, he issued instructions there was not going to be, he didn't want any more violence. So these are things we should, these are things we shouldn't, these were things we shouldn't forget. I'm sorry, the first question has slipped my mind. So with regards to the Gladio projects that were in Greece and in Turkey, which were in place to counter any possible left-wing revolutions that may have occurred in either countries or any Soviet influence, and to ensure that these countries stayed aligned with the U.S. as opposed to the Soviet Union. 
Again, one of the deals that Gorbachev had made with Reagan in his various summits, that they were going to stop over a phased period, and as long as there was also some, he'd get something back from Washington, that they were going to stop so-called subversion everywhere else. So they stopped giving money to communist parties throughout the world. They've diminished it almost to nothing by 19, actually almost by the end of 1988. Mr. Gentleman there, then Ryan Mann, and we've still got about 20 minutes. Quick question. Why do you think the revolution didn't succeed in China? I wish I'd written a book about China now. I'm not a great expert on China, but what they have tried to do is something entirely different. What Gorbachev tried to do was make political changes first, and other things would follow. So he tried to democratize in a slowish fashion, but pretty radically for the Soviet Union and for the Eastern Bloc, whereas the Chinese tried to, whereas he made almost no reforms, economic reforms at all. They were so halting as to be practically nonexistent. Almost no privatizations, no free markets. It was still pretty difficult, even in 1989, to set up as a plumber or a baker or an electrician in the Soviet Union. He did almost nothing. He kept prices fixed, if he could, whereas China went completely the other way, and they went for economic reforms and basically embraced capitalism and made no political, practically no political reforms. They've tried it in a completely different way and more successfully. But China doesn't really have, again, I say this not as a Chinese export, but it's communist in name only, and they've abandoned communism as an economic system quite a while ago. They have something entirely different. There was about seven years ago, eight years ago, a debate in the Chinese politburo about actually abandoning the name communist in their party. It was voted down because they thought it would confuse the people. But even in the politburo, there should have been such a debate because they themselves acknowledged they probably were no longer really communist. They ditched communism to have communists still in power. They've tried a very different technique, a very different thing. They looked at what Gorbachev did. I think Deng Xiaoping looked at what Gorbachev did and was horrified and decided that he wasn't going to do that. Ryan Mann. Hi, Victor. It's Ryan Mann from the European Institute. Hello. The events of 1989 are normally couched in universalist ideals based on freedom and justice and things like this. And normally revolutions in general are couched in these same universalist terms. 
What is your feeling um, given, the, given the explosion of nationalism in the, in, this, in the subsequent decade, in the 90s? What is your feeling um, of the role that nationalism, particularly nationalism, in each Soviet satellite played in these events? And in how many people do you think clung to the alternative universalist ideology of communism? Well, the last part of your question is I think very, very few people um, by the mid-80s were um, convinced communists. I didn't, you know, cynicism had eaten into the soul of communism so much. There were very few. There were, part, there were, there were, there were 10% roughly um, of the people in these countries, in, in most of these, in nearly all of these countries, roughly 10% of the people were members of the Communist Party. But very few people believed in it by then. I think that, that the whole nationalism question is a, is, a, is, is, is a very interesting one because to some extent these revolutions were nationalist as well as anti-communist because Soviet, the Soviet Union was the, was the, was the occupying power. Um, what's the, what communism and what the Soviets had tried to do was was to uh, within within nearly all of these countries was um, was to uh, um, suppress any nation, uh, nationalist feelings. So in some of them, I mean, in Romania, for example, um, he tried to ban Ceausescu tried to ban um, any education in, in Hungarian amongst a very large Hungarian minority. In, 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 in Transylvania, the Russians had for long, long tried to do similar things in, you know, in their nationalities in the, so, in the Soviet Union, in, 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 in Slovakia. Communism tried to suppress this, and it was. Some people would argue it's a more, it's a natural urge, and um, in some people, and these are very old, atavistic feelings of nationalism. In, in some of these countries in Central Europe, are very, very, very deeply nationalist, um, Hungary and Poland. And, Particularly, um, even in East Germany, was a peculiar situation because it was a split. It was a country. It was a completely um, uh, invented country, uh, entirely arbitrary country, based entirely on where the where the Soviet army happened to get to in May 1945. Nationalism there was a slightly different thing. It was very difficult for the East German regime to create any sort of nationalism. But, but these revolutions in many ways were, uh, apart from anti-communist slogans, you nearly always heard Russians go home, Russians out, get rid of the Russians. It was a, it was a, it was a big subtext of, 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 of what happened in, in 89. May I just smuggle in just one more question, exercising um, Chairman's prerogative, um, um, uh, Victor? Um, we think of all the when we think of that period, the 70s and 80s, we think of the heroic dissidents who somehow who've taken on massive sort of totemic significance, and we rightly um, uh, sort of pay tribute to their huge role, at least in sort of moral and symbolic terms. I'm thinking, obviously, people like Václav Havel who's actually coming to the school in a couple of weeks' time with some other former East European leaders, Central European and East European leaders, um, and Adam Michnik, people like that. Do you quote in your book um, the famous Czech dissident author, um, sort of maybe just being realistic but being slightly sneering at the same time, what he was saying about the efforts of all these 
or the Samizdat Refusenik and by implication all those who were supporting them in the West. We were very aware through Tom Stoppard, Roger Scruton, Encounter Magazine and so on, the heroic resistance that these people were putting up. We thought that they would help to sap in some way the communist regimes. Well, what Milan Kundera says that it was not only idealistic but stupid to confront an immovable regime with meaningless small deeds such as passing around carbon copies of manifestos. Is that your sense? Is there any sense in which these heroic dissidents actually contributed to a sort of moral erosion or were they just bit part players at best? No, I think they played a major part. They did over the years. I mean, it would take more than a few articles in Samizdat magazines to bring down an empire. But over the years, it played a big part, especially after 1975 and the Helsinki Final Act was passed because it gave them much, much more much, much more authority. So, yes. But Milan Kundera left and exiled himself and that was his he was free to do so. He was in a position to do so. Havel decided to stay and he said in answer to Milan Kundera in fact, in answer to that it's not possible for 7 million people to leave the country. It wasn't the leaving with exile wasn't an option for everybody. They tried to get they tried to force Havel out many times. He just refused to go. Absolutely. I think they played this dissidents played an enormous an enormous part. They didn't do it they didn't do it on their own. They required it required a set of conditions of which I've tried to describe for them to have got the authority but without them without them it wouldn't have happened. It sapped it did sap the moral energy it sapped the it sapped the it sapped the will. Thank you. Yes. Gentleman right at the back and then the other gentleman there who had had his hand up earlier as well. If you can keep it quick and we can get in perhaps some other key questions. I'm Eduardo Baudet first year student here at LCA studying history. So as history students we're often encouraged to question and analyze the biases and limits of each book we read. So would you be so kind and honest as to tell us what are the most important biases and limits of your book? I'm sorry again I didn't hear that. What are the most biased aspects of his book? Exactly yes. What in a moment of well of sort of confessional and self-denunciation you're invited Victor to say where you've been intellectually dishonest and share with us where you think you well at the very least have been perhaps economical with the truth or let your own prejudices. Talking to a highly respected professional journalist I never reveal my nobody is I never reveal my sources or my prejudices. Well I have a prejudice in favor of the I have I had a prejudice in favor of the Solidarity Trade Union. I have a prejudice in favor of of Havel. I have a prejudice in favor of the plastic people of the universe. Very much in favor of them. And yes the dissidents who many of the extraordinarily brave people who did 
who risked, he had enormous risks talking to me and other reporters at that time to try and tell the truth. Where I've been, I hope I haven't been intellectually dishonest. But certainly, I think anyone who would read that is that I do have prejudices. I have a prejudice in favor in many, many ways for Mikhail Gorbachev, who I think is a remarkable man, although enigmatic in many ways and often did the right things for the wrong reasons. But he did do the right things. Any more prejudices? That's about 20 pages. There are about 400 pages in the book, so perhaps I have 400 prejudices. You've done quite well. Just for those who are wondering whether Victor had taken leave of his sense to start talking, rabbiting on about plastic people of the universe. Oh, sorry. They were a rock band. They were a very, very, they were a, well, their music was terrible, but they were really wonderful people. And they, they, it was their arrest in the 1970s that, that prompted quite a great deal of the Czech dissidents, including Havel, which then led to the passing of the Helsinki Agreement. And they played a minor but an intriguing role in this whole story. Listen to their music, and you might disagree with me. But they were remarkable people. I promised the gentleman over there that I'm going to take two questions after that, and then I'll have to draw things to a close. Hello. Hello. My name is Kester Keating. I read PPE at Oxford. I'm now with Oliver Wyman Consulting. I noticed you sort of emphasized the kind of intentionalist approach to history, but you also mentioned three structural factors, Afghanistan, foreign debt, and oil prices. And it struck me, if you look at the contemporary informal American empire, military bases overseas and so on, you can actually apply these three factors to the U.S. Failure in Afghanistan, large foreign reserves held by China, and the impact of high oil prices. I wonder if you think there's any parallels with the decline and the effect on the Russian empire, Soviet empire in 1989, and perhaps a decline in American power today and over the next decade. Well, the one word, very simple answer is no, not really, because even though these were, as I said, these were factors, I don't think the world is a different place today. America, whatever, I'm not, I don't want to get too drawn in contemporary arguments about Middle East war or even the financial crisis, but I think trying to draw a comparison between the Soviet Union of the 80s and through most of its existence and America now is futile. I mean, there are very few similarities. Surely, I'm just total self-belief and the sense of, and the legitimacy that goes with it is... Well, I understand the way the question, I don't see, I wasn't trying, I'm not trying to, I wasn't trying to make a comparison between, in my statements earlier, I wasn't trying, 
um, to make. Obviously, there are some comparisons. America is involved in a long war in Afghanistan. That's a comparison. But they're, they're not necessarily, they're, they're not, they're, I think they're, 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 rather, they're rather different wars and they're rather. Um, okay. Um, two more questions. Uh, yes, I'll take one from this side and so the gentleman over there. And if you can keep it quick, we're going to have the other two questions that caught my eye there. And Yvonne over there. Sorry, so the gentleman there first, yeah. Um, hi, uh, Andreas from Norway. I'm studying a master here at um, the AI. Uh, thank you for a great lecture. Then um, I had just one question. Do you see these events as inevitable? Uh, is this would have happened um, in any circumstance? Or is there some changes that the Soviet Union could have done in the late 1980s that could have kept them going? Or is it inevitable in your personal view? Thank you. Um, do you mean in, could they have held on to um, their Eastern Europe? Um, well, yes, if they, did, if they had decided that they were going to, 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 to continue. If they had decided instead of electing Mikhail Gorbachev as General Secretary of the Communist Party in 1985 to one of their um, more hardline figures, things might have turned out very differently. Um, there was nothing inevitable about that. They might very well have decided they were going to um, risky, though it, more and more risky though it was, would, have, would have become, to have used their traditional policing methods to, to, to cling on to, to, to their power. So yes, there are things they could have done, but it would have involved, the only way they could have done it was to involve blood, would, would have involved quite large-scale bloodshed. Thank you. Um, there was a gentleman over there. Who was it? Who was that? Yes, sorry. Um, and then you hand to Lorenzo, and we will have to draw things to a close. Yeah. We just need a, a mic, please, for the gentleman there. Uh, good evening. I'm Joseph, a student from the City of London School. Uh, I was wondering, given the, uh, given the cynicism that you've talked about, the Russian public having uh, at the time, um, do you think that as in China, uh, if economic reform had proceeded to political reform, Russia still might be a communist state today? Um. Well, no, because I don't think China is a communist. <laughs> as I, I said, I don't really think China is a communist state in the in the sense that you know, it calls itself communist. But in how 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 does it have how, its economic policies? Even its most of its socialist policies are no longer communist. It has a tribe that, in power that calls itself communist, but it isn't. It's authoritarian. It's not communist. It's. Um, if Russia had tried it a different way, probably the same thing would have happened. There might still be the same people, the 10%, the self-perpetuating oligarchy that, um, that, that, that keeps itself in, in, in power might, might, might still be, but now it's got a different self-perpetuating oligarchy of billionaires. Thank you. Um, Ivan, Right on the right. 
Good evening, my name is Siren. I am a master's student at the European Institute and I have a very simple question. If you had to choose but one factor which ultimately pushed the, the people to the streets, would you choose the economic ones or rather the lack of liberties, of civil liberties, of freedom of movement, etc.? In, in so many ways, they combine together the, the, the freedom of the civil liberties and, 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 and economic liberties. Uh, um, that if I picked one, I would say I would say people can live with unfreedom longer than they can live with um, with poverty. But they're so connected. Under the communist system, it was so the, 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 the way, the, the, way the, the command economy worked, that, was, was, that, was, that commanded everything in the economic sphere as well as the, as, as, as the, as the political and, and, private, and private sphere. They were so interconnected that, it, that in many places it was hard to, hard to tell whether this was a civil liberty and this was an, an economic Liberty, um, but, um, but, it's, but, it, but it's very hard. It's not just that they couldn't. It's not just that they couldn't vote um, to um, the government out. They couldn't. They had no power. Uh, they had no power economically in a, in a completely centralised system where everything everything was planned. Also, I use one. I, I, I have another uh, anecdote that I tell there. That in that in that under the command economy in Poland, that was nearly always written by men. There, there was a five-year plan, and in, and nowhere in the five-year plan was um, there any mention of hairpins. So in Poland, absolutely no hairpins were made. Now, you know, if a woman had been involved, or uh, yeah, in, 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 a, in, a, in a free market system, somebody would have come along and made some hairpins in, in Poland, but, and women would have been free to buy hairpins. Um, so, in the, they're so they're so confused together in, uh, in, 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 in their systems, um, civil liberties and, and economic liberties, that, it's, that, it's, that it was often quite hard to... In hard cases like... like Ceausescu's Romania, it was it was sort of obvious. It was so grotesque, and the and the and, and, and the megalomania and the and the um, uh, uh, and the brutality of it was, was you know was so appalling in the eighties that it was uh, that 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 drove it. But elsewhere, that that extreme repression had um, had 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 disappeared in most of, of Eastern Europe by then. I'm, in fact, going to go back and what I said and take one more question. Ian McEwen. Yes, I'd like to um, ask you about German unity and the attitudes of Western governments. It's, it's now in the public domain that Mrs. Thatcher had a private conversation with Gorbachev, reassuring him that, uh, that the NATO statement uh, welcoming the possibility of German unity was to be ignored and uh, that she and I think possibly 
in the case of Mitterrand, were, were deeply anxious. In fact, we know from news reports at the time they were. Uh, what's your sense of this? Oh, both of them were extremely anxious and wrote, um, and they did have a, they, they, they definitely did have a conversation. And Gorbachev did say that he would. Gorbachev at first was anxious as well, but his advisers told him that there was nothing. Ultimately, if it came down to it, there was nothing he could they could they could do about it. And all of them had their arms twisted by George Bush, who was in um, the President Bush, who was in favour of it and wanted to advance it as, 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 as fast as possible. But they were terrified of it. Having France and Germany, um, both of them having said publicly for, you know, for 40 years that, yes, yes, their great dream was united you Germany, the moment it became a possibility, they, they were... They were dead against it, but they did have the. They did have. They did realise there wasn't an awful lot they could really do to um, to, um, to, to to halt it. So they got real. Well, I think we'll all agree we've had a fantastic hour and a half, a really, really tremendous uh, uh, time. Um, Victor, you've given us uh, a great talk. You've answered the questions um, very nicely uh, and interestingly. Um, Victor's book just to draw your attention if you have noticed on the way in there is a stand should you wish to buy a copy perhaps with the author's signature um, and as I said before and I just remember repeating myself it really is a cracking very very pacey uh, read so I do commend it to you uh, Victor thank you once again from all of us and uh, you will be always always be welcome here on, on this evening's form uh, you can be sure of that well thank, thank you very, thank you very much